It's a little bit noisy here at Empire State That's South. That's okay. But in front of me is David Wondrich, who is uh, the author of many books on spirits and cocktails and bartending, and really responsible as the, uh, well, we hold you, you don't know this, but we hold you as the brain trust of all things liquor. That's uh, a little terrifying. <laughs> but yeah, it's okay. It's okay. You got to keep that. I mean, that brain's intact. pickled in a jar somewhere. Well, yeah, but yeah, yeah, but that that's fine. Yes, yeah. it's, it's booze. That's the it's, job. It's a preservative as well. Yeah, so that's it's true. good. So, David, I've got Imbibe in front of me, which is a book you wrote in what 2000. I wrote it. It came out in 2007, and then I rewrote it about uh, four years ago. Yeah, I've got the rewritten version, which. Uh, which amazing to me is to talk about how much things have changed in restaurants, but also when it comes to cocktails and cocktail production and bartending, it's changed exponentially in the last 12 years since you initially wrote it. Oh, I, I spent so much time in the first edition on uh, like ingredients you can't get. Right. <laughs> you know? And then and, suddenly uh, they were available. Suddenly they be- Partly because of the book and also because of the work a lot of other people were doing. Suddenly, yeah, you could get everything. And so I had to rewrite that whole part, you know. I read that in the new introduction. Yeah. So what were some of the ingredients that were just were impossible to find before that well, are now on the scene? we couldn't even get like a, a real old school Jamaica rum. You know, like a pure pot still funky pirate juice Jamaica rum you right. couldn't get. You couldn't get... Uh, True peach brandy, like distilled from peaches. Now you all, you still kind of can't get it. Uh, it's made by a lot of small distillers, and they all make about one barrel a year. Where is uh, peach brandy usually produced? It was originally produced down here in Georgia. Yeah, because yeah, I would I mean, think that's why they had all those goddamn peaches. Yeah, you know? yeah. It wasn't for eating because they 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 kept for about three days. Yeah, it was mostly for distilling. Huh. They made a lot of peach brandy down here. So who's making it in Georgia now? Now I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know of anybody off the top of my head. Uh, people are making it in places like Colorado, California, Massachusetts. Now we are in Georgia, but I, I will give a high five to Colorado on their peaches because yeah. their peaches are fucking amazing. They are. They're really. They're good. amazing. They're really good, and their peach brandy is really good. They've got a couple of the best brands. Yeah. Uh, I know that people still make spirits from peaches here in georgia but i don't think they're making it commercially if you know what i mean no it's kind of more least, backyard wine yeah it's the scupperdonks and muscadine affiliations are there and they're and, distilling and you, you might get a glass jar with some white stuff in it that, right uh, was made from peaches but. but even the quality of moonshine i find has gone gone up exponentially as we've learned more about it they're just no oh, longer dirty uh, yeah they're, they're different they you know when i the place, oddly enough, the place where I probably have consumed the most moonshine is arguably the most ex- expensive hotel in North America, which is Blackberry Farm. Um, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's yeah, yeah, where we all consume. Yeah, I, I haven't gotten any moonshine in a long time because uh, all, all, a lot of the moonshiners have gone legit, I guess. Yeah, they have. It's easier yeah. to get be yeah. legit these days. Yeah, and uh, you know now now they're micro distillers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's just a different connotation. Yeah. Not as yeah. much running from the police. No, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, all that prohibition gave us NASCAR in some weird way. Yeah, that. it gave us all kinds of, you know, uh, it, it gave us the mob. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you. You know, which, I don't know. I, I probably know thank you, things, but on the but other hand, uh, it gave us a lot of entertainment. <laughs> you know? So you've had many, many jobs throughout the years, uh, apart from being a writer. But you were a, you're a professor of Shakespeare for a while? Yeah, I was an English professor. 
Okay. That was the worst job I ever had. It was terrible. My I sister is an job. English professor and teaches a lot of Shakespeare yeah. in Canada. But uh, yeah. Well, uh, teaching the Shakespeare was great. I, I liked that part. I didn't like the uh, academic politics. I didn't like the workload. I didn't like the uh, the conferences I would go to were always in a motel on the highway with a cash bar. And everybody was mean. <laughs> you know? The conferences have probably gotten better in the Maybe. last 10 years. Yeah, but, yeah, but I don't know. You know, now the conferences I go to, uh, I mean, they fly me business and I get uh, uh, free cocktails. You got to go to Tales of the Cocktail yeah, each and year it's, and it's things like that. It's full of uh, sporty people who are fun and exciting and not out to steal each other's jobs. Not like, curmudgeonly untenured professors. Yeah, exactly. But you've had many other jobs, too. How did you fall into writing about and having the, the jobs you do now about liquor, well, wine, and beer? Hold on. This, hold this on. We're going to get a cocktail. And we've got a drink. So. We've got a drink. Kelly Thorne, our beverage director for all the restaurants, is bringing us a, a beverage of sorts. It's got beautiful ice in it and some sort of greenery. Is that a fern? That's that not is, a fern. It's a pineapple yeah. leaf. It's a pineapple leaf. Uh, thank you. This is Silk Curtain. This is aged rum agricole, uh, the Clement Select Barrel. A little Bonal Aperitif wine. A little pineapple liqueur from Jepard. And then Pisoni uh, um, Amaro liqueur to add some berries. How lovely. Enjoy, gentlemen. Thank, thank you. you. Cheers. Chin chin. Chin chin. That's good. Oh, I needed that. Yeah, it's four o'clock. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh... I got I got into this job like kind of through the back door as everybody does. Uh, I was starting my professor job and I was already not liking it, and I was writing about uh, music on the side for the Village Voice. Which you were a jazz critic. I was a jazz. That's critic right. There. I'm and, a huge jazz fan. Oh, so we, for you. we'll definitely God talk about you. that. You know there aren't there aren't enough jazz fans left. And I buy I go to this crazy jazz record store in Toronto, Canada. Called Cosmo Records. I go there. Out there, get I've there. never been. I gotta go. That's the place that like I go by there and buy a bunch of Archie Shep records there. Yeah, people like that, and uh, they're they're just the most insane jazz collector store. I mean, when I've I was writing seen. about this stuff, I did more early jazz because the uh, Village Voice already had a jazz critic who did that kind of thing, and he was very famous and very good. But he hated like swing music and Dixieland, and I actually liked that stuff because I came out of the rock world, yeah. And that stuff was like small band, kind of rowdy, you know. And I was like, okay, uh, I, I can understand. You this. can appreciate that. And so I started writing about that and discovering that you could catch that stuff live every night in New York with all these bands who were phenomenally good. And I wrote about them, and uh, then uh, one day a friend of mine called me up, at the end of 1999, and he said. Uh, Dave, I know I know you, you know, you write about music and I know you got a couple old cocktail books and like cocktails sort of. Um, do you think you could write about them? And I said, "Nah, I'm really busy. I don't think so." And he said, "Well, you know, it's for Esquire magazine's website." And I'm like, "Well, that sounds like fun and I like Esquire." That was 1999. Yeah. Was there a website? There yeah, was they a had, website. They, he was the director of Allhurst uh, uh, new media. My friend Josh Mack. They only had one guy, basically, and just a couple people. But uh, Esquire did have a website, and I, I still was like, Nah, I don't, I don't know. And it says, uh, "Well, we'll pay you three thousand dollars." I'm like, "What? I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do it." I was a junior professor with a two-year-old at home. 
you know, that was uh, that was a lot of money for me. So, but uh, you'd never really bartended or anything. No, nothing like that. I worked in interest. bars for years because I was a musician, so I played in bars. Yep. So I knew, you know, kind of how bars worked, and I spent a lot of time in them. But I'd never been a bartender. I knew how to mix drinks some. I'd uh, I'd, I'd made some effort on that, but uh, so what was the Esquire article online? Well, for? it was uh, they had an old cocktail book that they wanted to put online. And I organized it and rewrote. I noticed that some of the drinks had these kind of sporty little paragraphs about them, about some of the recipes. And I started uh, writing those as headers for the different categories. And, and Esquire, uh, my ed- editor at the time, Brendan Vaughn, says to me, you know, we like those, uh, those things you wrote. Can you do one of those a week? And I was like, okay, you know, you'll pay me. Yes, we'll pay you. And uh, so suddenly I was a drinks columnist. Back in the and day I, when I, you got paid to write stuff. I know. And I started at the top, basically. You know, I didn't have any, uh, I didn't have to struggle uh, with that part of the business at all. So from that, you crafted out, you got a book deal yeah. somewhere along the line. Well, yeah, and and Bibe was the first book, right? No, no. I, I wrote Esquire Drinks first. Okay, yes. And because they hadn't done a drink book in 20 years. And David Granger, their editor, who was just an amazing guy, said, yeah, sure. The minute I walked in, he said, yes, let's do that. And so I did that. Then I wrote a book about music. Then I wrote a little flip up or flip open cocktail book because they paid me cash on the barrel head and I was poor. And then I wrote Imbibe. And Imbibe was like the book I really wanted to write. It was a, uh, a biography of Jerry Thomas, the first like uh, as I thought then, the first famous American bartender. Turned out there were others before him, but he was the first one to write a book. So Jerry Thomas was a bartender where? Uh, where do I start? Uh, New Haven, Connecticut. Um, New York City. And this uh, is like California. 19... Oh, no, it's 18... It's 1800s. Yeah, 18, uh, around 1846-47 in New Haven when he's 16, working for his brother. And then he becomes a sailor. Then he jumps ship in San Francisco in 1849, tends bar out there after some other stuff, goes back, opens a bar in New York under uh, P.T. Barnum's museum, which is kind of amazing, and then uh, goes broke. Uh, plus, he had like $16,000 in gold uh, when, he, when he got back to New York, and he spent it all in three months. And that was a lot of money back then. I mean, sixteen thousand yeah, dollars in gold. Yeah, yeah, the fanciest hotel in town cost you a dollar a night. Yeah, wow. So, uh, well, you know, where did he blow it on? Uh, gambling, I suspect. Okay. Sports book. Yeah, yeah, you can do. You can yeah. waste a lot of money yeah. that way pretty quickly. So, Jerry Thomas is really known as like one of the first documented people who were making quality-driven drinks. But all the drinks in that time were kind of liquor forward. They oh, weren't yeah. really concoctions. They're more like slight hints of something. Oh no, there, there's some good mixing. The the one thing they don't use is is what a lot of drinks use today is vermouth. Okay, you know where where you soften the liquor. Yeah, uh, they soften it. There there are a lot of sours. There are fixes, which is like a uh, a sour with a fancy garnish. There's the sour. There are punches by the glass. So those all use a lot of mixing. There's milk punch. The cocktail itself, though, is is very booze forward. Right. It's just hints of bitters, uh, hints of liqueur, a liqueur, usually orange curacao, and ice and sugar. You know, 
It, it's really there's. Do not they much have to it. really crazy ice programs back then, like we well, all have to they have? They all now. had blocks of ice and they carved yeah, them up. I guess yeah, yeah. They butchered them to order. So, so it, it's it's like the the progress we've made in bartending is going back to the days of yore. In some um, ways, it's at least enabling us to do that stuff. You know, we can still do modern stuff. We'll still have a blender, but uh, there's stuff that they had that for a long time was beyond the 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 skill of any bar here. Uh, when you couldn't get rye whiskey, you couldn't make like a good, you know, a good Manhattan. You couldn't make a proper one anyway. When you couldn't uh, get blocks of ice, you couldn't vary the size of your ice for for the for the the effect you wanted. So you couldn't have a big chunk in a drink that was a slow sipper, you know. Right. You just had to fill it up with the with the with the crap chips that came out of the uh, the Japanese machine. Mixology by necessity. Yeah. 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 So where. When did bartending change in your mind in the last, like, what's what's the biggest change in the last 20 years? In food, I've, I think it's like, it's acquisition, the, the enablement of uh, enabling chefs to get better and better ingredients, a focus on those ingredients yep. again, um, but also sort of making sure that not just four stars was where technique and professionalism and thought and like core fundamental values mm-hmm. of food came into play. Is that the same kind of... Well, we're a little behind on that last part. The other parts, you know, a lot of uh, bartenders came out of the culinary world. There's uh, a lot of the inspiration came from seeing what happened with chefs who went from being cooks, a job that was not much respected, to being a job that you can actually make a good career at and, uh, you know, build a life for yourself and a really satisfying one. Uh, you know, if you're lucky, etc. And bartenders kind of went through that. I think that was the biggest change was the desire to be a better bartender. Right. You know, and, and the realization that if you were a better bartender, like one who was historically informed, who knew what all the ingredients were, who knew all the, you know, who really knew the business as a professional, that you could actually have a career. And it, it started earlier with, you know, uh, I'm friends of Larry Forjone who uh because my wife used to work for him and jonathan waxman also she worked for both of them in new york in the 80s and uh you know those guys were such pioneers but they had already figured that out in the 80s it took bartenders until uh, to to create the conditions for that until about 2005 but now we've got the conditions for that yeah i mean that's somebody like kelly Who's a fantastic bartender, but also was like beverage director, right? You know who, yeah. who, who has a career, right? And and I think that that was a sort of sitting down of a lot of people within our profession, going, "Hey, wait a minute, this is not just a last ditch effort type of profession. This right. is one where I can actually excel because most people invest." Um, minimal effort into doing it it's that yeah, type yeah. of job for the majority yeah. of people yeah, for a but lot if of you want certainly. to invest a lot of smarts into it it can be like it's this endless topic that suddenly it, arises it's a very rewarding job it's a very hard job like a line cook or short order cook you know it's so it's it's, it's physically taxing and yeah, hours also mentally taxing yeah. in, in that you have to you know every time somebody orders a round of drinks you have to systems engineer it and do it in front of them while talking to them right so that's that's kind of crazy that's where it differs even from the kitchen. You know, it's 
the kitchen, you've got to do all that systems engineering. You bet you don't have to play therapist to no, the guy three no, seats into no. the bar. And you don't have to do personnel management to the same degree. You see the same people every day. Yeah. You know, they see different people and they've got to size them up. Yeah. It's a very hard job when done well. Uh, I mean, it takes a lot of, uh, a lot of intelligence. So Americans were unwilling to pay more than $8 for a drink up until probably about 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that we were able to sell it as a better experience, a better quality-driven ingredients, et cetera, et cetera, and um, having the customer realize that they're making an investment in the skill set that's there. Yeah. Right? I, I think they see where the money goes. Okay. You know, if you go to a top bar, I, I mean, I've seen modern craft cocktail bars open in the craziest places. I have uh, my, my family has a property in... Uh, extremely rural Pennsylvania across the uh, Delaware River from uh, from New York State in the northeast corner of Pennsylvania. I mean, farm country like you wouldn't believe. There's nothing there. Right across the river in an old firehouse in a town of maybe 200 people uh, that had no commercial spaces whatsoever, these two guys from New York, uh, original, well, originally they were from various places in the in the country but they they opened a craft cocktail bar and uh it's hugely popular it survived they opened it last summer it survived the winter with locals and it's you know all the summer people go there i mean wh whoever's up there not that many but the locals go there too and are realize that you know they used to be paying five dollars for a cocktail and there they're paying eight and it's worth it it's very hard to go back you know, you get it a, is hard to go back. As you get a really you, good drink, and you yeah. and then you go, ah, that thing was crap. What do you think the the first step to realizing uh, what 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 skill sets on the palate do you want the average American to have to understand what a good drink should taste like? Well, like let's let's talk through I, I the mean, old, a classic old fashioned. Yeah, I think what differentiates I think it from they already being great. got it. You know, I think they do too. I think it's because. But I think that was a monumental change for me is when I realized when an old fashioned was not hitting the notes I wanted yeah, it to yeah. hit. It was usually because it was saccharine sweet, um, yes, and lesser quality ingredients, and you could tell that. And then the ice was not great, and and it was watery, you yeah. know, and watery and sweet. But I think, you, you, like I said, you give people the proper one, and they. Seem to go go right with it. They know? won't go back. Maybe like the first time, it's a bit of a shock, but they they come back, and it, it's it's pretty stunning. I mean, I, I think people have uh, America and Canada too. Frankly, in the U.S. and Canada, people have this palate somewhere in the back of their brain. You know, it's. It, Do you it's find there. European cocktail culture outside of the U.K.? The U.K.'s got pretty strong cocktail, yeah. cocktail culture, but it's it's funny that. And this is not navel-gazing. I'm Canadian, so I'm not navel-gazing at the United States uh, as, as an American, but a, a dual now. But, but it's funny when I go, say, for coffee. I go to yeah. Italy, the hotbed yeah. of what people think is historically great for coffee, and there's not much great coffee. Well, it depends. Hey. On, it depends. You know, I, I like espressos, and I get a lot of good espressos. And yeah. anything else, there, you know, that's it's not, not their thing. It's not their thing. No, they're espresso drinkers. But it's funny that it, that in the in in the states uh, and in Canada, I think we've come so far on so many fronts, yeah, culinarily yeah. and and uh, drink wise, oh, yeah. that, that that we excel at really great coffee shops. With we excel at really great um, cocktail emporiums and bars and things like that. And I'm just wondering, like, well, uh, I, I'm half Italian, right? And yeah. I, and I've got Italian citizenship 
as well. So, uh, and so I spent a lot of time over there and kind of have a little more of an inside, inside look at, at the culture over there. And I think, you know, Italy has a strange but actually pretty good cocktail culture. France, less so. Uh, in Italy, it's, uh, they don't go out to drink. They drink like during the day. Right. Whenever. You know, it's it's not a big deal. Just wine always. No, but they'll you'll you'll go. They'll get an aperitivo. Yeah. There there are a lot of uh, pastry places and candy stores that have fully stocked bars. You know, that's just crazy to us. See, it's when like, I was a kid going to the candy store, that's what I always dreamed of. Yeah. <laughs> you got like a, <laughs> you could get a martini. Uh, there's there's a an 1830 candy store. I mean, it's it's that old in in uh, in Torino and you know in Turin that is like the oldest candy candy maker and and like also sells ice cream etc but it also has this small little stand-up bar that fits about eight people but it's fully stocked they've got mezcal they've got sherry's they've got like eight different kinds of funky rum you know and they make those too they make coffee they make ice you know whatever you want and that's kind of like the italian model it, it, it's We'll, yeah, have a drink in the middle of the afternoon or it's went, 11 o'clock in the morning. But they're know. not going to have six, you know? Yeah. They'll have yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, but we still go out and have four or six. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, 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 that's the difference. It's, it's, in traveling the world, I find I can stumble onto some places and find and eke some things out through a little bit of searching yeah. and find the most interesting bars these days. Like I went to one in Lisbon, Portugal. Uh-huh. It was literally the size. It was like. 12 feet deep and maybe four feet wide. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I love it was that. tiny. It was run by this uh, obscure American eccentric guy. Uh-huh. And he made, he had the best little bar. And it was great. That's the fantastic. cocktails were awesome. But when you uh, find those things, it's like, yeah, I'll look it up. For, for when I go to Lisbon. It was, it was amazing. And yeah, it was just see. cool to see cocktail culture going on there. But yeah. But it's kind of everywhere now. I it think is. that we just it respect is. it. I mean, I grew up making my grandfather, who was, my grandfather was a... Uh, soldier and an engineer and in Canada and he was born in India and all those crazy stuff. Uh-huh. And this British guy uh, went through the mail room and became not for money and became the CEO of his company or whatever. But he'd make himself old fashions every night but with like CC, like Canadian Club. Oh, yeah. Oh, like yeah. the worst... Oh, yeah. The worst old-fashioned ever. Canadian Club, well, you know, went downhill considerably in the 20th century. Yeah, I, I think it lost its luster somewhat. Yeah. It used to be a real ride. Yeah, yeah, well, it did. I but mean, now the it's, Canadian I don't whiskey's know what it coming is. back, you know. It is, but are there really good ones? Yeah, there are. Well, what they're doing is, you know, they always made good whiskey, but it was like they took a pound of Kobe beef and blended it with nine pounds of just, you know, supermarket beef. And, and you and, end and, up and, with supermarket beef. With supermarket beef, exactly. And now they're saying, you know, if we keep some of, even a half pound of that Kobe out of there, it's not going to change that at all. Right. And this stuff is delicious. Yeah. So they're starting to do special bottlings. And there's some really wonderful whiskeys. A couple of years ago, the best whiskey I tasted that whole year was a uh, pure corn whiskey, uh, column distilled, the very light, uh, aged for 10 years in very old barrels. It was just the subtlest. Like smooth as most delightful whiskey. Yeah, there are I a bunch imagine. of distilleries and smaller ones in like Collingwood and yeah, places like Collingwood. that now. Yeah. yeah, which is interesting culture coming up yeah. there. Yeah, it's, it's kind it's of the weird wind, up there. Uh, the luxury ski area yeah. for Toronto. The, 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 the dive bar is carpeted and has fluorescent lighting. For an American, that's just really weird. It is. That's kind of like the. Uh, I spent some time in Alaska one time in, in Juneau. 
And uh, Sean, Brock, and I dared ourselves to go into the bar that everybody said, do not go in there. Oh, yeah. And well, it, you had to. It was, it was the worst bar ever. Oh, yeah. It was just that Listerine over urine over uh, throw up smell. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah it's that's a little so rough. Good. That's not good. So who, uh, what bartenders, I'll tell you the, the bartender I like, and not just because of their ability with a shaker and their ability to make a good drink, but just because I think they're one of the best humans in the world was Jim Meehan. Oh, Jim Meehan's an old friend of mine, a lovely guy. And so, so there, there, there are a number of really wonderful bartenders that I know. I, I I know, oh God, so many. You know a lot of bartenders uh, here in Atlanta. You know, uh, Greg Best, Greg uh, Best, is, and is Miles an McCary. Yeah, they're they're old friends of mine, and yeah. uh, Paul Calvert, and uh, you know uh, these the Eric Simpkins. These, yeah, Ticonderoga uh, and then you know, uh, Watchmen are like side by side, yeah. and the it's amazing the the skill sets. And uh, the cocktail resumes of those two places side by side, separated by a door, is pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing for Atlanta. So you don't really find that that no, many places. I mean, but you know, around around the country, there's so many great bartenders. I mean, uh, it's it's endlessly surprising. I'm a judge at Speed Rack, which is uh, the women's uh, speed and accuracy bartending competition. I could not imagine competing in that thing. I would break down. I would be. I would be in tears. I mean, and these women are just so fast and so so tough and so accurate. It's 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 amazing, you know. And and they're going out and tending bar. I mean, yeah. It's a it's a it's a, a really interesting time for for for, and I, for I this weird craft. It's a really good time for the craft, just because I think it's more yeah. respected than ever. Yeah. It is funny how it's changed, though. You know, Kelly runs the bar program here, yeah. obviously, but. I mean, there's a full prep list now. Oh, yeah. It used to be the bartenders should show up at five, fill the ice bin, and get going. Yeah, they'd cut limes with the same knife, the only knife, the really dull use, one. Yeah, that you used to open boxes. You know? Yeah, it was like yeah. And, uh, they, and now they they have their own knife rolls and they're yeah. willing to spend, uh, you know, making uh, shrubs and special garnishes and well, I mean, tonics. It, it and, does ultimately, eventually, pay off. Not for everybody, but it can pay off. Yeah, you know, it's like you can get a good career. Yeah, you, uh, and because you know how to do all that stuff. But you can also branch out and write about it, and yeah. and research. You know their their websites. I know you you write for Punch a fair bit, and people like that are just a great assets to the community, and that they give it a professional foundation to, yeah, to build. Absolutely. On. I mean, uh, you know, now you can yeah you can do a career as a drink writer. When I started, there were very few people doing that. And, you know, when I, I focused on history, nobody was doing that. It was just this weird job that I basically invented using my academic background and uh, my like of, my like of corny jokes and uh, It's a good creation you language. created. So, yeah. You know, there you go. <laughs> what are you working on now? Uh, now, God help me, I'm the editor-in-chief of the Oxford Companion to Spirits and Cocktails. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's like a decades-long project, yeah, it's, isn't it's, it? It's a really long project. I'm, I'm nearing the end. Thank God, because it's just, it's a nightmare. But it's, you know, I've learned so much. Uh, That's I, the I've LaRousse like, gastronomique of uh, yeah, libations. Basically, basically, is the idea, you know, with like figuring out histories of things, actual histories, not like what the companies tell you. Right. You know, all that kind of stuff is just. Not the narrative that their social no, media companies no. have created for them? No, apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those, uh, apparently, uh, a lot of those that leave something to be desired. I was shocked. Yeah, they, I mean, 
booze history is crazy, but uh, it's yeah, and there's no, there are very few. You know, how many pages is that book? Oh, uh, it's going to be big. It's going to be big. We've like, got twelve hundred uh, entries. Yeah. Wow. So, so, yeah. Who's publishing that? Uh, Oxford University. Okay, Oxford. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I've got their wine book. Yeah, the it's, like, it's, like, it's in one. that series. Yeah. So hopefully it'll come out good. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm terrified. What's the best drink you had in the last week? Other than one, hopefully you're consuming. Uh, okay. Last week I was up in the country, and I was uh, making this crazy drink that I came across. Uh, it's called the Jeunesse, youth in French, and it's uh, a French drink from the 1940s. It's uh, two parts Cointreau, one part lemon juice, and one part Suze, which is a gentian aperitif. Yeah. It sounds like it would be way too sweet. The main spirit is a liqueur, but it's freaking delicious, and it's not too sweet. It's just crazy. The Cointreau is not too sweet? The lemon juice cuts it enough? Yeah, yeah and, the, and, the, and the bitterness from the Suze Sus. also. And, and what's Suze? Suze is a yellow uh, 20% alcohol uh, gentian uh, aperitif from France. It is French, okay. Yeah, and, and this was a French drink. and uh, but Did it I'll look like bright it yellow? It's pretty, it's pretty yellow. It like, <laughs> looks like a piss test? Uh, Suze does. Yeah, uh, Suze is bright yellow. Yeah, and, and the drink, because of the lemon juice... Uh, Muddles it, it out a little bit. It's a little, little less u- urinary. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, which is good, exactly. Was but, it on ice? Uh, yeah, shaken and, st- and strained. Okay. So like a cocktail, like served up. Huh. It's fantastic. That's cool. I, I recommend it highly. It's uh, It makes no sense in any no. form whatsoever. That's why I had to try but it. But so many drinks don't really make sense yeah, in a there, lot of ways. There's enough. I mean, there are a lot of really good drinks that just follow the formulas. But some of these, every once in a while... There's something like that that just somehow somebody hit on something. Now, in in my world of food, I'm always like, I, I don't want young chefs to suddenly be wanting to make Grant Ackett's food, right? No. I want them to learn how to roast a chicken first. I want them to learn how God to tend for God bless vegetables you. and properly poach asparagus and, you know, do and make really great stocks that have a clarity. Well, that's what, and, that's how you can run a good restaurant like 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 Empire State South here you know where but you've yeah, got you've got like the the fundamentals down but it's really difficult to keep them from wanting to make lobster oh, air suspended in a gelée of jasmine um you know so but you find and that it's the same with bartenders it's the same with bartenders these days yeah it's a rare one i mean the ones i, I like the best are the ones who focus their energy on learning all the dirty jokes you know and uh who who uh have an easy rapport with their customers because a good a good drink is one thing, but an arsenal of dirty jokes to oh make people feel comfortable and cared for is yeah. another. And also, you know, it's it's conversation, it's amusing, <laughs> and uh, a bartender who can tell a lot of jokes is is a really good thing as long as they can make the drinks. You know, I mean, to some degree, they don't have to be the most creative. I mean, they have to be to know the standards. What's uh, your favorite hotel bar? Oh boy! Bigger classic hotel bar. Yeah, classic hotel anywhere. bar. I'm trying. Uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, there there are a lot these days. I would say the Nomad Bar in New York. The Nomad that's Bar not a classic. is classic. That's a new one. It's pretty great. It's it's 
it's new, but it's it feels very classic. I like they design around patina well. Yeah, I like the the bar at the Georges Sank in Paris, but yeah, <laughs> you know, just because. But I mean, it, people should go to these places regardless of if yeah. they're staying there or not. Thank you. Kelly's back with another cocktail. We're lubricating ourselves into the five o'clock hour very soon. This is the Stolen Muse. This is BSOP Cognac, uh, La Quinta and I Blanc Vermouth. Little Pierre for Enjoy Curacao, which I think you might know a thing or two I, about. I, I do. And some Luxardo Bitter Bianco. Oh, lovely. Enjoy. This Beautiful. is right up my alley. Thank you. So, well, cheers. explain the Curacao. Uh, the Curacao... Uh, what is Curacao? Wait, Cur- Curacao is a blanket. In- it's a blanket term for orange liqueur, basically. Okay. And, and people didn't so understand. So is Cointreau a Curacao? Yeah, Triple Sec is a Cura- is a style of Curacao. Grand Marnier is a Curacao. They both used to be marketed as Curacao until they decided that they were, you know, grand liqueurs uh, and only to be known by their brand name. Uh, that was their marketing idea. But uh, this uh, Ferrand Orange Curacao came about because. Alexander Gabriel, the head of Ferrand, is a friend of mine, and I was down at his uh, facility in Cognac, and uh, we were tasting Cognacs to uh, come up with a new blend, and and he asked me, what do you think of my orange liqueur? And I said, I I wish it was more like a traditional old Curacao. He goes, oh, I can make that. And I knew how to do it because I'd been playing around with a little pot still I had at home and made a uh, fairly good facsimile of, of... 19th century Curacao, so I knew what I was looking for. Okay, so you've got the, you're making this Curacao. Walk me through the annotated version of from start to finish. How do you make a Curacao? Well, okay, you uh, distill orange peels with, uh, in this case, grape alcohol, like new, fairly neutral spirit. Add some other spices, uh, and then what spices like uh, cardamom, peppercorn, that type of thing. Uh, these are a secret. It's a secret. I don't even know. I mean... It's, uh, it's such a secret. You know, David there, doesn't even know. There's not much, you know. It's, right. It's just hints of yeah. of like accompanying... I'm getting like spice. nutmeg and clove, but in very fine fine amounts. I mean, that that could also be coming from the vermouth. Yeah. Which is highly spicy here. Mm. But then you, then you finish it with an infusion of, of fresh peels. Like like the way the traditional way is just to macerate it once and with flavor? peels, and then you take the peels that you've distilled, and you put them and you steam the any remaining alcohol out of them, and then uh, you combine those, blend those together, and then to make it a triple uh, curacao, you would uh, take fresh peels and infuse them in brandy, and this is what uh, how Grand Marnier was originally made, uh, and uh, then you. Uh, Mix that infusion in with the uh, with the original, with your with the other part. So you've got three different like uh, liquids based on orange peel that you're blending together, and then you sweeten it. So it was. It was, it was and is there a clarifying aspect to it? Uh, you clarify it for sure. You let everything settle. Okay. Uh, for the the last infusion, but no fining or just settle. The last one probably needs some filtering and okay. fining. Uh, but uh, and originally it was done with with neutral spirit and orange peel. But uh, in 1894, 1893, uh, the Cafe Royal in London went to the uh, Marnier Curacao Company in Paris and said, instead of using the neutral spirit for 
that final infusion. Can you use some of the old cognac from our cellars? Oh. And they said, yeah, we could try that. <laughs> Money's no object. And then, Let's uh, do this. Uh, Payard, the restaurant, uh, saw this and said, hey, can you do it with our cognac? They said, sure. And then Payard went and had it made in Holland instead for cheaper. And there were all kinds of lawsuits. Yeah. And it ended up with Grand Marnier. <laughs> wow. That's <laughs> They crazy. didn't even know this until recently. <laughs> History. We're yeah, always discovering it's, it. Uh, that's always fun. That's that's the fun part for me. So it, it, I, I think that sometimes in food and in beverage, uh, you know, Kelly and Steve and I, uh, Steve, the wine director here, I, I, I often have to check ourselves to remind ourselves that though we, we love this stuff and we know a lot about it, what we think is going to fly and be popular, it, it, we're looking through a pretty small prism because a lot of America still wants just a, good simple drink yeah right yeah absolutely so uh, you know what what do you think the next thing america well, see, is going to cling on to as being like just it, part of their regular repertoire i'm coming around to a kind of the uh, to america's point of view at this point after doing this for 20 years i'm like i don't really want it to be that complicated you know yeah uh, i'm back to drinking martinis <laughs> I, I you know i don't think there's anything wrong with no, that i it's, don't think so it's kind of like in the world so. of food um you find these great restaurants that you want to go to. Yeah. You go to them, and you've read all the hubbub, and you eat it, and you're like, that was really good. I would probably go back in like two years. Yeah, I mean, I, I like Yet, uh, I want something I want to go back to every week. I, uh, I go I go these days uh, more than once a year, at least, to Relate of an East. You know that? Uh, this, yep. is, this, is a, this is a restaurant there in, from Paris. They've got a, brand, a couple branches in New York. They serve one menu. You get a salad with a nice mustard vinaigrette. And, uh, and then you get steak, uh, l'entrecote, uh, and, an entrecote, yeah. uh, grilled uh, as you as you wish, and fries, yep. and that's it. <laughs> you know? But what do they do well? All of it. All of it. It's, it's very delicious. limited, and yeah. it's all delicious. You, you know, I come around to execution is just so important. But that's the thing. I mean, if you, if you walked into a restaurant and went to the bar and said, and they have a menu of three things, yeah, that's great yeah. as long as they're all yeah. nailing it exactly. But that that's. That's the trade-off. Is like okay, we're going to keep it they, simple, but we're going to do it really well. I mean, you know, that's like Italian food is is very good at that. Is like, yeah, our menu is the same menu you get all over town, except the dish is different wherever you try it, but not like greatly different. It's not reimagined. It's just the details of execution. It's like this guy uses a lot of onion. The, the, you know, over here, she doesn't use much onion. She uses maybe a little nutmeg, you know, and it, it, but it's all within the parameters. But they get the best Parmesan Reggiano exactly. and use it exactly. copiously, exactly. and that's why it's good. And their yeah, technique the ingredients with are this. impeccable. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the key. But but it's also a focus on on a, a limited uh, idea that, yeah. that you want to perfect that limit idea, limited idea. Like I always look at fast food and I think, why does everybody love In-N-Out? It's like In-N-Out does basically, a, it's a really tiny menu. Yeah. Whereas you look at McDonald's menu now and they've been throwing shit at the wall, hoping oh, something will stick for like all this 20 stuff. years. Well, I mean, it was all over once they introduced chicken nuggets, you know, yeah. really. I mean, because yeah. then they weren't a burger place. No. You know, it's Chickens like, don't have fingers. Yeah, and they're or, not or even the filet of fish. It's like... Or the McRib. Yeah, I mean... And that's even just seasonal. Yeah, but I remember McDonald's from a kid, their burgers were great. You know, uh, at least I thought so. And I wasn't allowed to go. No, I, I don't think I liked McDonald's as a kid. I don't know why. I was a well, picky kid. Well, you know, I was, uh, this was, I'm, I'm, I was born in 61, and this is like 
the mid 60s when McDonald's was like over 3 million sold. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I was born in 71. I think they're yeah. still claiming to something good at that point in time. Yeah, I, I, I think know. there was still a, that was you know the 70s saw them transform. In the 60s it was still a burger chain. Yeah. And you know you got things in paper and like and they had the big golden arches and 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 all that and and they focused on on burgers and so they did it fairly well. They did a good job. Yeah, they did a good job. Yeah. I mean Yeah, it's, it's important to uh you can be creative, but I think it's you always got to have in the back of your mind, with, especially you know with drinks, probably with food too. Is like a little restraint goes a long way. Yeah, you're always it's always a balance, and whatever you move it on one spectrum, you lose it on another. Yeah, it's like the New York Times published a salad the other day from Via Carota, yeah. Jody Adams' restaurant, uh, and it was so simple and so brilliant mm-hmm. and so good, and it got me thinking like. And I come in here, and I, I love my chefs. I love my people. But it's, sometimes it's just so busy. Why are you adding all these things to yeah. it? It's like yeah, yeah. that salad doesn't need, you know, um, uh, curdled buttermilk on the base that's been smoked. It's like it just doesn't. Yeah, one or the other, Just right? take it away. Yeah, yeah. Give me a great vinaigrette yeah. with really yeah. beautiful butter lettuce and some shaved radish. Yeah, We're I mean, good. we've got sources here, you know. We, yeah. Now we've got sources. So if somebody wants to learn more about cocktails at home what's what's a book that's approachable for the masses they'll steer them in the right direction uh Meehan's manual is very good yeah uh jim Meehan's manual yep uh you know what's a really good one is uh paul clark's cocktail chronicles okay because uh, th- that has sort of a home emphasis and paul's very knowledgeable and uh it's a lovely book a little underappreciated uh and uh you know, that's a great place to start. Uh, if you want the history part, I would say, you know, my imbibe is a good place. Uh, if you're really a history geek, I wrote a book about Punch, which is all about the British uh, British Navy and, and all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, that, that one's really geeky, but kind of fun. But that's the world we're in. We're in a geeky world. We are. It's a good geeky world. Yeah. That's why we have better coffee and stuff. Yeah, I mean. Because somebody geeked out on that yeah. shit. And then you go, you know, geek it, geek out on it, and then bring it to the people. Yeah. Show but you got to figure out a way that's palatable and, yeah, and yeah. transportable to yeah, the people. Yeah, while, while still being great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we're smart people. We can figure it out. So what uh, what is something that's going to come on the horizon soon? Like vermouth is yeah, having see, its day. I've been day. trying to avoid this question. <laughs> I know. Well, it, it's, it's like people ask me. It's like. Um, What's your favorite yeah. thing to cook? And I'm always like, fuck, I don't know. Well, uh, anything I mean, that's good. I've seen like people have said Pisco is going to be big. That they were saying that happened. 10 years ago. People have said Cachaca is going to be big. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened either. And those are two wonderful spirits from here in the Americas that I love dearly. Rum, I think we're going to see uh, some sort of connoisseurship about rum that's going to be very disappointing to people who really love rum because you're not going to be able to get the good bottles anymore i think that's right now what's happening yeah really good rum is really small production and rum is rum is very distinctive throughout the caribbean where it's produced yeah um i mean we're arguing right now there's a huge argument about like how to uh label it how to regulate it and hopefully we'll come out of it where you get some sense of what's in the bottle, which is held. Does rum agricole really mean anything? Yeah, it does actually. That so, where does it mean? Uh, that's made in the French Caribbean from sugarcane juice, 
with like certain you know uh, uh, restrictions on what kind of juice is used, et cetera, et cetera. So that that that's okay. It's just uh, regular regular rum when it just says rum. Uh, it could be a variety of different sources, different distillation techniques, all blended together. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's just crap. And that's what we're up against. Yeah, it really, some dark rums can give you a headache. I mean, that's well, like yeah, black, black, black strap molasses of uh, yeah, well, beverages in a lot of ways. Dark rum is, you know, uh, what makes it dark, it does not have to be aged. Right. It could just be, it's just be more caramel. Yeah. A golden rum, white rum with caramel, you know. I took a tour of a rum distillery in Hawaii. Oh, that's interesting. And they're doing single varietals of sugarcane. And producing like twenty different rums from different varieties. Yeah, see, that's, that's interesting. really interesting. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, there are going to be differences in flavor. Yeah, they're going to be a little subtle. But well, that's the other thing. There's like three hundred different types of sugar cane oh, yeah. out there. So, oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, but and then there, the- there's all kinds of ways of fermenting and different distillation and all that stuff. And you know, now there, there's the, the move is that I think it was, this is my prediction for the future. It was, we'll see more stuff identified very narrowly as to how it was made. You know, so you can actually read the label, and that stuff is going to be hotly collected. Well, traceability and everything. Yeah, I mean, and, and the, the, we this, like that in wine. We like it in cheese. We like it in coffee now. Elevations, stuff. plots, all that. So stuff. the stuff with the most information is going to do the best. Is going to win. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. The, the most transparency, and you know, well, yeah, like you said, we see this in a lot of stuff. Uh, do you like Havana Club rum still? I do. I don't like their seven-year-old very much. Twelve-year-old's good. I, I like I like their three-year-old. Can you or, buy it in the states now? No, no. I always got to bring it in from abroad. Yeah, they have it in Canada. But everywhere. it makes it makes a great daiquiri. I think you know. It's for me. It's still the daiquiri rum. Have you been in Havana? I have. It's interesting. Interesting. I was there in 2011. It was. I find the drink culture there is actually relatively good. There's some real, uh, yeah. amazing stalwarts also, of, of quality. The music is great. In the music's all the great. Bars. The food is the food. horrid. Sometimes, yes. I had uh, I had. Some good food, and I had some really bad food. Yeah, it, we've been uh, unfortunately squeezing them more and more because they keep meddling in Venezuela. But yeah, I think yeah, I know it's I, a confusing I mean, world out there. I know it's. It, I mean, it's a shame. Uh, they're they're. I went to one one or two paladars that were very good. Yeah, and then one or two paladars that were mediocre, and a bunch of state restaurants that were deeply mediocre. Oh, the state restaurants. But you know, I'm, I'm I'm used to. I grew up in. Uh, uh, I lived my ho- most of my adult life in Dominican rest- uh, neighborhoods, rather. Right. So you know, I'm I'm kind of, I'm used to the the, the general pal- cuisine. <laughs> the paladars of, of uh, yeah, yeah, Brooklyn. I'm, I'm used to a lot of uh, heavy rice and beans, and you know, based uh, basically food from the west of Spain with Caribbean ingredients. So yeah. it's 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 not light. No, it's not. It's it's got some rich overtones to it. Yeah. Well, this book is uh, is amazing, and uh, you want to. James Beard for it, I which did. is awesome. What was the category on the James uh, it Beard? It was a drinks book. This was the first cocktail book to uh, to, to win, win, a, to win a James Beard award. Well, you broke you broke the. Uh, I broke the seal. Broke the seal. <laughs> broke the ceiling. David Wondrich, great to have you on, and uh, it's a delight just to talk about all things uh, booze. Well, because uh, it's uh, ever changing. A, a great pleasure. Get to have a couple drinks and talk. Yeah. Uh, I'm, this is wonderful. Thank it's you. Awesome. Thank you.